All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Charity Charge Show. Today, I have an old friend of mine, actually, that I grew up with um, going to McDonough School in Baltimore, Maryland. Huge shout out to the Eagles. Uh, his name is uh, Ray Wiesick, uh, and he's a guest on the show today. Hey, Ray, thanks for being with us. Hey, Stephen, happy to be here. You know, we were riffing before, and it was good. To, uh, it's been many months since we've uh, hopped back on the phone or, you know, had the opportunity to be together. Um, what I want to share with the audience, why I'm really excited to, to have you on, is a different perspective. Um, I've had a, tried to have a variety of guests, um, both in their kind of positions and roles at nonprofits on the show, and also um, representing the diversity of different causes and organizations. Um, for those listening, uh, Ray is the Director of Public Policy and Advocacy at the International Myeloma Foundation. Did I get that right, Ray? You did. And part of what we were talking about, you know, Ray lives um, in the Maryland area, and a lot of his work focuses on um, actually being in D.C. and the advocacy side. So um, do you mind briefly just talking a little bit about um, um, International Myeloma Foundation, kind of why the organization exists, and then maybe get a little bit of a background on your work? And then I've got some specific questions that I wanted to dive into. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the International Myeloma Foundation I should probably start with what myeloma is because a lot of people confuse it with melanoma. But myeloma is a blood cancer, uh, specifically it's the plasma cells in the bone marrow. It usually affects people who are over the age of 65, but we have been seeing a lot more cases of people who are younger. And I'll get into that in a little bit. But the International Myeloma Foundation itself started in 1990. Uh, it was founded by Susie Novis, uh, Brian Novis, and uh, Dr. Brian Dury. Uh, they were the three uh, founders. Um, unfortunately, Brian Novus, who was the myeloma patient, passed, uh, and Susie and Dr. Dury have kind of carried the mantle for the last 30 years. So we are excited to be celebrating our 30th anniversary. We are the oldest and largest myeloma-specific nonprofit in the world, uh, and we are international. We have about 500,000 members in 140 countries around the world. Uh, so we're really, you know, we've really worked uh, to expand our reach and uh, make sure that we really focus on four main tenets. Uh, it's advocacy, support, uh, education, and research. Obviously, I'm in the advocacy department. Um, and so to your question a little bit about what I do from the day-to-day -day, uh, uh, sort of work, um, we really work with legislators both at the state and federal level um, to look at access issues for patients and make sure that the patients are able to afford their medications, uh, that those medications are you know, the ones that are appropriate for them, uh, and then to also talk to patients um, and, and figure out new issues as they kind of arise. Uh, a lot of the things that I've been doing lately uh, revolve around Medicare, but also around some private insurance um, issues that kind of come up about affordability. Uh, you and I were just kind of talking about this, but one thing that really happens for a lot of patients in Medicare Part D uh, is they run into a massive, massive amount of money they, they have to pay out of pocket in the beginning of the year. Uh, so January and February, they're paying you know $6,000 or more out of pocket. It's not something that's really affordable for them. Um, so we've been working on legislation uh, that would kind of cap that amount uh, to a much more manageable level and then also smooth it out throughout the year to make it so that they can afford a more uh, monthly payment that averages out that balance that they would otherwise be paying in January or February. Um, so that's been a big part of our work. Kind of the other side of that has also been something that we call oral parity. Um, right now, it's called the Cancer Drug Parity Act. It's, uh, it's been introduced last March but it's uh, HR 1730 and S741. Uh, and that really speaks to private insurance, uh, people who uh, have insurance with their employers. Uh, generally speaking, uh, we've got about, about six out of every 10 people who are on private insurance or commercial insurance, I should say, 
uh, are, are getting it through their employer or some sort of plan that's regulated through ERISA, which is the Employer Retirement Investment Security Act of 1973, I believe. And if I got that right, I think I get a gold star. Um, but what that really does is makes it so that if an insurance company is already covering both the IV and the oral, that they cover the oral anti-cancer medication at the same rate as the IV. What we've been hearing from a lot of patients is that when they go to their doctor, you know, if they're on their IV, they're sitting down at the chair for three or four hours or getting that infusion. And then when they go to pay, they're on their medical benefits. So they're paying a coinsurance of 20 or $30, which is, which is great. I mean, that's affordable for most people. But a lot of the newer medications, and we were actually just told at this last meeting uh, that we went to at the end of the year called ASH, which is the American Society of Hematology, uh, that about 40% of the pipeline, which are the new drugs that are being developed by pharmaceutical companies, are these orals or self-injectable drugs uh, that people are able to take at home. They're much more targeted. A lot of times people's uh, hair doesn't fall out. They don't feel a lot of the other symptoms that they would from more traditional cancer treatments. But when they go to pay, it's on their prescription drug benefit. And so they're paying like 30 or 40% of the total cost of the drugs. And I don't think it's a secret, but cancer drugs are expensive. Um, so a lot of people are paying, you know, on a $10,000 drug, they're having to pay three or $4,000 out of pocket every single month uh, until they hit, uh, you know, their limit. And it's just not affordable or a tenable situation for most people to continue. And they have to kind of start making those decisions of, do I want to take this doctor prescribed treatment? which is what the doctor's telling me is the best case scenario for me to, to increase my survivability, or do I want to try to do something else because I can't afford it? Um, and so we want to kind of eliminate it, that. And like I said, you know, making it so that if, if an insurance company already covers the IV and the oral, that they cover the oral at a rate no less favorable would accomplish that. Uh, we do have state legislation uh, in 43 states in DC that is what we consider some form of rural parity. Uh, and there's about seven states left, which would be like Idaho, Tennessee, uh, Alabama, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Michigan, uh, and Montana that don't have that state level of legislation. And so we're working on that. And that's part of what I do. So uh, those are just kind of two of our top line issues. I know you've got some questions, but I did want to kind of get into those things because I'm, I'm pretty sure my boss would kill me if I didn't. Look, I'm really glad that you shared that. You know, I'm really moved by hearing it. Um, you know, what, what I, what you know, and I'm not sure if, you know, people listening to this is that my father passed away from cancer about 13 years ago. And, um, without going into all the details of it, um, you know, he, from at least what I know had, you know, very sufficient, um, healthcare coverage and we didn't, you know, while he was being treated, you know, have, again, to my knowledge, any significant, you know, financial strain because he had, he had great coverage. Um, but that's not true for everyone. And candidly, I was, as I'm thinking about it even now, I was probably guarded if there were from, from that stuff. I'm sure he was the type of person that wouldn't want, you know, his sons or his family worrying about things of that sort. Um, but I think it really highlights as I'm, as I'm listening to, and, you know, obviously, I mean, I've known, known your work at, at uh, IMF, International Myeloma Foundation for a while, but it's really helping me put it in more perspective because, there are so many different organizations, even if you think about um, the healthcare kind of vertical of the nonprofit world, and then you specifically think about cancer, and then within yours, your specific uh, uh, focus area of myeloma, that are doing all sorts of different things to ultimately help patients. But I think what is really special about what you're sharing is the um, prevention, advocacy, side of things to really actually help the patients. Um, and I think it's really important. Um, so I want to really applaud you for doing that and being um, just someone out there that's really 
trying to make the world a better place. Um, we really need it because the flip side of it, again, not getting into the, the specifics of it, but, you know, I really relate to a lot of what you're saying because one of my, um, called him Uncle Gary Bob, passed away about um, probably uh, six or seven years ago. And he had significant challenges with his health insurance, getting coverage for his cancer treatment. Um, mm. Because what he had through his employer just candidly wasn't good enough to cover. And um, it was awful to, 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 to see him suffering. And I remember, um, I'm candidly blanking on the specifics, but him complaining about all of the challenges that he was facing and, um, and him wishing that there was something better, not just for him, but I remember him specifically saying, I wish I could start a nonprofit to, um, you know, fight these insurance companies and kind of change laws and stuff. And so I'm really moved by what you're sharing. And that's kind of a little bit of a rant here. But um, with that being said, I know you jumped into spe the specifics, right? Which is really mm. great. I'm curious, like help educate me and anyone listening. If you zoom out, I mean, what's really going on here? <clears throat> and this show is whatever we want it to be. So political or not political, why are things the way they are? And if it's your opinion, that's fine too. But you mind walking us through like how we got here? Sure, Stephen. Um, and I just want to say, you know, uh, your, your brief story that you kind of shared there is really part of the reason I do this because it it, you're encapsulating what I think is a lot of people's experience. I've had the same experience. I've lost two family members to cancer. Uh, one family member lost to leukemia, or I'm sorry, lymphoma. Uh, another family member I lost to breast cancer that metastasized to the brain. So I, I share your pain. I know it's really hard to lose a loved one, and it's even harder when you know that there might have been a better way. It might be something that, you know, a, a drug that would not necessarily cure them, but might ease their suffering. And like, you never want to think that they missed out on that. You know, you always want to wish the best for your family members. And we always meet so many people, so many people out there that have this connection to cancer. Like they might not have, the, not have had it themselves, but they've almost everyone knows somebody who's been affected by this. So that's really a big part of what we're doing. But to answer your question, like how we got here, it's really complicated. There's been so many different things that have happened over the years. Um, and I should probably state this, but you know, the International Myeloma Foundation is a nonprofit. We're a 501c3. We are not political in terms of picking sides. So we can advocate for you know myeloma patients, but we don't uh, take a partisan approach to anything. So we're very nonpartisan. So anything I do say in this podcast is my own opinion when it comes to anything that might sound partisan. Just you know, throw that out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, we we really have been down a long road with healthcare. Over Can I stop you there just one second? Yeah, I go ahead. A really practical question. What does that mean? Like in other words, so we, we do at, you know, at Charity Charge, we work with a lot of organizations that are, I mean, candidly C3s, C4s, C5s, mm -hmm. C6s. And I obviously know that there's, you know, very specific kind of laws and, and, and things around fundraising versus advocacy and like using dollars and, you know, different designations of organizations. So high level, I'm, I'm aware of it. But what does it mean to be like non-partisan in your work? Like what can't you do, I guess, versus what you could do if you were a like advocacy organization? Sure. So like if, if we're a C3, we can't take a, a stance on, let's say there's a legislator that's up for re-election mm -hmm. um, and we don't – and I'm not saying this has ever happened, but there's somebody that we don't like, like they're really anti the legislation that we're pushing or something along those lines. If we were a different, like a C4, and I'm, I'm not entirely clear on what a C3 or the difference between a C3 and C4, but I do know that they can actually act politically. Yeah. So 
um, you know, they would be able to go and would do what's called electioneering, where they would advocate for a particular candidate or against a particular candidate. We don't do that. We really just try to stay very focused on the issue and, and keep the politics out of it. So we don't really go, well, the Republicans did this or the Democrats did this. Like that's, that's where that nonpartisan comes in. So we can go into a Republican office, sit down, talk to the staffer, explain the perspective of the myeloma patient, make sure they're aware of how this legislation would, would work or affect that particular person without really getting into the specifics of what we might think politically about it. Um, and then walk out and then walk into a Democrat's office and do the exact same thing. And it's the same speech because again, we're really, we're really myopic in that we, we focus on the impact to the patient and that's it. And we're not looking at, you know, trying to help one party or another. So I, I hope that kind of answers the question a little bit, but that's to me what our nonpartisan work looks like. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. And that, and then, um, I know I interrupted you with that question, so please proceed with the other thought and I'm happy to rephrase it if, if we got off topic there. No, no worries. Um, so, you know, you're really asking about how we got into the situation with healthcare being what it is. And uh, the, the reality is, is that it's been a long trek this way. Um, you know, the insurance, the way insurance was created, um, you know, back really with Nixon and moving forward, it, it's changed. But the insurance system took a big turn to become much more private. Um, and we allowed the commercialization of healthcare. Um, and so we created these healthcare markets and then it became a system where there were people who were better candidates to cover um, because of things like pre-existing conditions. Uh, so if somebody already had cancer previously, they were much more susceptible to having a reoccurrence as opposed to somebody who lives what an insurance company would consider to be a highly active lifestyle, didn't smoke, didn't drink, no stress, et cetera. And so they would look at somebody who is likely to have a reoccurrence of cancer and say, well, that person's going to be more expensive to cover. So we don't want to cover them. And so that's when you started that whole you know, lifetime caps on coverage at a million dollars, or we won't cover people who have had pre-existing conditions or, you know, things like things along that line. Um, and so I say it's been a long trek to get here because a lot of that didn't really change for the better until the Affordable Care Act was brought, brought forward uh, at the beginning of the last decade. Uh, and that really kind of gave those protections that we kind of know and love now. And whether, no matter how you feel about the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, and I should probably you know, note that that is the same thing. Um, I've always been shocked that people think they're two different types of systems. Um, but no matter how you feel about it, I think most people can agree that getting those protections about uh, to make it so that an insurance company cannot discriminate against people who have had a pre-existing condition, uh, making sure that we eliminated the lifetime caps, those types of things have been good for patients. Uh, is Obamacare perfect? No, there's definitely some changes that have needed to take place, um, but it's still better than what we had before. And it definitely has helped a lot of people uh, gain coverage when they didn't previously have it. Mm -hmm. And we've kind being, of, uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, Ray, being totally just presenting both sides of the quote argument, just objectively here, what really then like at the current state, when you think of like Democrats versus Republicans, right? The, the two sides, like, what's going on and what are the pros, what are kind of the pros and the cons of each side, right? Because there's a lot of people that I think are a four, um, obviously, uh, the, again, as you say, it's not perfect, you know, the, uh, the notion or like what Affordable Care Act is designed to do and what it's doing. And then there are others that are for, you know, the complete, you know, privatization and no restrictions and things of that sort. So, I'm so less in it. So like, yeah, I'm kind of a dummy when it comes to this stuff. What, what are the pros and cons if you look at it objectively on both sides? 
Sure. I, that's an excellent question. It's, <laughs> I'm probably not even going to do it justice because it is so incredibly complicated, but um, you know, the lines, so to speak, about where people have fallen on this issue have blurred a lot in the last probably four years. Uh, we've seen a lot of what President Trump has brought forward um, from his, you know, his policy pushes towards healthcare have actually been Democratic proposals in the past. And then you've seen Democrats that are trying to get even farther left on, on that because they don't want Republicans being farther, farther left on health care than they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm, I'm just speaking broadly here, but that's sure. you've kind of seen this shift to the left, which is how you've gotten to this Medicare for all proposal from people like you know, Senator Sanders. Um, it's, it's been in, an interesting ride. Uh, in terms of what, what one's better, it really depends on your perspective. A lot of people argument against the ACA has been the affordability issue for them because for some people, the premiums were very expensive, um, especially in the su- certain states because it really creates these state uh, marketplaces where people are able to buy and sell insurance or not sell, but buy, buy insurance. Um, and for some people that didn't work at, right off the bat. And so their premiums were very high uh, because the population, you know, for a lot of states, the population had never had insurance. And all of a sudden you're having a lot of people who have a lot of healthcare issues kind of flooding the market, going in, getting cared for the first time, but that causes everybody else's premiums to rise because the cost of care increases for the whole population. Um, and so the argument's always been, well, you know, you are forcing these younger people who are healthy to pay for these older, sicker people who are not healthy, who have never had insurance before. And, and I, I feel like that is a valid criticism about the way that the ACA was rolled out and what happened in the beginning. I remember being one of those people um, who, didn't have health insurance and was all of a sudden forced to have health insurance. Um, and I was very bitter about it because I was in school and couldn't really afford it. Um, luckily my school had a plan and I was able to get on my school's plan and all of that and it all worked out. But I remember, you know, at the time being like, Oh man, this really sucks. Like I, you know, I, I don't have two pennies rubbed together and I got to pay, uh, you know, X amount of money every single month. Um, and I was trying to figure out how it worked. And I remember at least one year where I didn't have insurance and I just paid the penalty because the penalty was cheaper. A lot of people did that. However, over time, um, as more preventative measures have been put into place and more people are able to have access to that care, you start seeing people going to the doctor less and less because they've already taken care of some of those ailments. They've, they've really head off um, what could have become worse situations for them medically. Um, and so you've seen the premiums start to decrease. That being said, now with the current administration, they when they first got, when Trump first got into office, you know, uh, there was a lot of talk because they, the Republican Party held all the levers of power, um, and there's a lot of talk about replacing the ACA. That didn't happen. Whether you agree with that or not, that's your opinion. But there were some proposals that were put forward. Um, a lot of those contain things like Medicaid block grants, which is something that's actually just announced recently by the Trump administration. Um, you saw some things about allowing uh, more uh, sort of pilot programs from states um, in, in order to provide better health care. Uh, association health plans have come about, which are plans that don't have to be ACA compliant. They're more short-term health plans, but they also don't provide the same coverage because they don't have to, um, they don't have to uh, comply with the ACA rules about pre-existing conditions or the caps or anything like that. So there's been a lot of things that have come out. I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that we're going to have this discussion some more in this coming year during an election cycle. It's going to be very dynamic. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of ideas fly out there. There's, it's also going to be pretty heated because people have very, very strong opinions on how this should play out. Um, and in a perfect world, in a perfect system, we should really be having a lot of compromise. That's really what the, the, the way that the legislatures 
should be working together. You should have both chambers coming up with ideas, working together, hammering out a solution. It might not be their perfect idea on one side or the other, but it's a compromise between the two that kind of really understands the needs of both sides and, and the issues, but we haven't seen that lately. Um, and that's kind of scary, but I'm, I'm kind of hopeful they can get back to what John McCain would always say, which is regular order. Um, and really kind of get back to work on the needs of their constituents in a way that takes into account the people who may not have voted for them. So we'll see what happens, but it's, it's kind of freaky. Well, uh, it's going to be a crazy year, to be honest with you. Well, I, maybe we'll have you on as a, as a follow-up guest to kind of help educate us and bring us, bring us more insight into this. I really appreciate you touching on it. I just, you know, got some good perspective from you as well. Um, it's really great to be able to have a conversation like that. Um, you know, something that I want to, as we kind of round out this interview and in, in this episode, you know, I want to remind everyone that something that remind is the wrong term. I actually didn't even bring it up, but you know, Ray is um, an attorney by trade, you know, and has a, has a law degree. And so when you focus on your advocacy work, you know, I, I've really never kind of been in the building. You know, you mentioned to me in the sense that a lot of your, your day to day when you're, um, is on Capitol Hill is working on legislation can you just share with people a little bit about what that process is to the extent, even if you focus on like a specific initiative, um, this is kind of to anyone who's never been in any sort of like governmental role or try to interact with anything like public policy or legislative in, in manner. Um, what's that process like? Uh, that's another great question. Um, and it's kind of fascinating because everybody really kind of sees. Also, oh, from the non also from the nonprofits perspective, um, as well of like the pure, you know, advocacy side, which I think is really, which is really unique. And again, what I think is really awesome about your work, because there are so many amazing organizations. We work with a lot of them and a lot of them, you know, I funded personally or know the people that run them. There are a lot of organizations that are doing, uh, kind of, I would call it quote boots on the ground type of work, like helping cancer patients or providing rides for cancer patients or, you know, all these other, cause it's such a big, um, big, uh, area of concern or cause or need. Um, but it's really cool that you're like advocating on behalf of like all the people that have cancer or the cancer organization. So I give it back to you, but it's, it's cool. You're kind of big picture, um, kind of umbrella, um, focus. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Um, you know, we, we do bring some patients onto the Hill every once in a while, depending on the situation. Um, so I, yeah, I'll go through kind of the whole thing. Uh, there's really three or four different ways that this goes about. One thing I didn't get to talk about earlier was our veterans program. So we, I actually run it. Uh, it's called veterans against myeloma. Um, it really is very targeted towards former service members or current service members who have developed myeloma. Um, we've got a lot of members who develop myeloma through their service during the Vietnam War and their exposure to Agent Orange. Um, mm -hmm. The reason I bring that up is because we really were big proponents of HR 299, which is the Blue Water Navy Vietnam Veteran Act of 2019, and there was a previous one in 2017. Um, but we did a webinar on it, and what the bill really does it is in what it, it actually is now uh, active. It's it's you know signed into law by the president. Um, but what it does is it allows about 60,000 um, former uh, sailors and Marines to access their benefits from the VA by giving a presumption of exposure to Agent Orange for anybody who served within about 12 nautical miles of the shores of Vietnam and uh, certain places in Korea uh, during the Vietnam War. Uh, what had happened in the past is there had been an Agent Orange Act that was signed in the early 90s um, that had given this presumption of exposure to all, uh, to basically anybody who was a Vietnam veteran. 
And the VA kind of reinterpreted that back in the early 2000s to mean people who specifically put their feet on the shores in Vietnam. And there's a lot of litigation going around about what that, if that was a proper interpretation of the legislation or not. But in the meantime, about, I mean, all of these Vietnam veterans who had previously been getting treatment through the VA suddenly saw that stop because it was no longer presumed that they had been exposed to Agent Orange. They now had to show a specific instance of exposure, which means they had to show, you know, oh, I had a, you know, I handled barrels or I got sprayed by a device of some sort. And it was really difficult to do. Um, and so we really were a huge proponent of this. So, like I said, we did a webinar with a, a rear admiral um, whose name escapes me at the moment, but he was a, he was an awesome speaker. Um, he was not a Vietnam veteran himself, but he had developed myeloma through his service um, and knew about trying to go through the VA. Uh, and so it really has turned into um, a wonderful kind of story because we worked with Senator uh, Gilbrand's office. Uh, they were great to work with, uh, but I, what it ended up happening is, is he had to go reach out to the offices of the original um, legislation uh, sponsors. So we reached out to Representative Valadeo, uh, in the, who was the original sponsor in the previous bill, and uh, Senator Gilbrand, who was the sponsor in the, in the Senate. Um, talked to them about the legislation, why we supported it, how our members are affected. Myeloma being one of those types of cancers that's been acknowledged by the VA uh, of being caused by exposure to Agent Orange, how we could help. You know, sitting down and actually talking to the staffer. I developed this webinar through on PowerPoint. I sent it off to the, to the office for them just to take a look at it to make sure I had my facts straight about the bill. They were helpful with that. Um, actually getting the word out about the, the webinar. I mean, all of that really played a part. You know, they have a comms office that would, would push our webinar um, out there as a, you know, as a story because it's something that they wanted to promote for their constituents. Um, you know, all that played a part. And then when the bill actually passed, you know, it was a really great feeling because we knew a lot of veterans had contacted their legislators, uh, you know, by, our, by using our action alerts, um, letting them know that to support this particular piece of legislation. And it worked. We had a really good um, kind of grassroots organization around that. Uh, and so that was just one way that we do work with uh, Congress. But more often, it's me kind of walking up the hill, you know, organizing meetings with staffers, sitting down in an office with them, going through whatever the issue is. And, and we always really kind of do the same introduction I did at the very beginning, which is, you know, we're the International Myeloma Foundation. This is what, how long we've been around. We're the oldest and largest. Uh, we know we really are very focused on myeloma. Let me tell you what myeloma is and why we need to fix whatever this particular issue is, because we need to make sure that these patients have access to their treatments. You know, myeloma is a very individualized disease. It's not something that really you that you can do a one-size-fits-all drug for, um, and it's always in combination with something else. So when you have multiple combination drugs happening, uh, and depending on the first, or second, third line, you need to make sure that the patient's getting what the doctor prescribes. And so we've always really been a big proponent of um, that perspective when we go up to the hill. The third thing that kind of happens uh, is what we call hill days. Um, so we might like we're we're the lead of a coalition called the Coalition to Improve Access to Cancer Care, and if I can just put a plug out there for that uh, coalition's website, but it's access to cancercare.org. Um, but we this coalition is the one that pushes for the oral parity legislation I spoke about earlier. Uh, it's got about 30 different organizations in there. It ranges the gambit between uh, we have industry, which is to say pharma. Uh, we have uh, we have other nonprofits that are on board, and then also we have professional organizations and associations. So we have like oncology societies, uh, and we get together. We talk about sort of what ways we can push this bill in front of particular legislators that we think might be supportive. Uh, then when we do our hill days, we gather in groups. So we'll have three or four 
uh, people like myself who are you know professional lobbyists or are people who are uh, volunteers but also very well versed in the issue will form the teams we'll have probably three or four teams at a time go up to the hill and we'll do like eight meetings in a day so it's a really long day each meeting is like half an hour um, but you go from office to office you know you go to Cannon you go to Longworth you go to Rayburn or you go across the street over to like Russell and you talk to staffers and sometimes you actually talk to the legislators themselves and again, you do that whole thing, like this is why this is important from our, um, our, our foundation's perspective. And then the other organizations around the table will, will talk about what they're trying to accomplish as well. But we're all pull, kind of like rowing in the same direction. Like this is really important for, to all of these different groups of people because of the same reason in that it provides this better access to the treatments that these patients have been prescribed. Um, so those are kind of the three big ways that we've interacted with, uh, with Congress uh, and worked with legislators. We do the same thing at the state level. It's really not that much different. Uh, you really reach out and talk to a legislator. Um, for example, I'm gonna be running, or I am running the coalition in South Carolina that's pushing for oral parity. Representative Jefferson's been very supportive. He's the original sponsor. It's, uh, it's bill number 4792, I believe. Um, but it's, you know, it's something that organically happened because we have patients out there who spoke about what is happening with their, their, their treatment and why it's, becoming difficult for them to receive that care. Uh, Tiffany Williams is our patient in South Carolina who wrote an op-ed, got put in the newspaper, Representative Jefferson saw it, called her, and immediately understood the issue, was very sympathetic to her, and wanted to do something to make it right. And so that's, that's really how we operate. We, we operate in sort of a, um, you know, a tandem between working with patients at the grassroots level, getting their stories out there, making sure people hear what's needed for them, and then also our behind the scenes sort of push uh, to make sure that we follow up with these uh, with these staffers, that we meet with them in person, and we follow up with them again, answer any questions, provide them with all the documentation they possibly could need, uh, then continue to push and not really let go until we, they either tell us to stop uh, or they really um, you know put this in front of their boss and, and get them to sign off on it. So it's it's really a, a high stakes, high risk, but high reward sort of job because you really get very deeply involved uh, and get very passionate about the issue. You know, you, you know. You, at least you feel like you know what's right uh, and what's needed in order to help these patients. You know, from our perspective, um, our philosophical approach to this, because drug pricing has always been a huge issue. Drugs are very expensive in the cancer space. Um, there's no disputing that, I don't think. But we look at it beyond drug pricing. That's just one component of it. We look at it like out-of-pocket costs are really the main focus for us. So a drug could be $100,000 if you have that cost to $50,000, but the cost sharing it for an insurance company is still what it is currently, that patient might not be able to afford the drug, even if it's half the cost. So we really kind of look at all of these different components of how legislation works, how policy works, how insurance works, how regulations work, and then try to make them work for the patient. And that's kind of the long, really long winded of saying that I kind of enjoy my job. I love hearing that and your passion rings through and through um, that last point you said about loving your job. And I think it's just awesome. The work that you're doing, I'm really inspired by it. And candidly, I'm happy to just even on one-on-one, -on -one, like have this um, education to understand more and more what IMF is all about. And I hope for the rest of our audience as well. And I know that, you know, so many of us, as we kind of started and have weaved into this interview, you shared your personal experiences, how you're, you know, connected directly to cancer, and I shared mine, and I'm sure many people listening to this are as well. So I'm curious, you know, um, <clears throat> I'll just say, you know, for anyone that's um, interested in learning more, there's um, myeloma.org is their website, which is m y e l o m a.org. 
Um, Ray, what are other ways that people that maybe are listening could get involved or support your efforts? Sure. Um, so they can actually reach out to us directly. It's advocacy at myeloma.org. That's our email address. Um, if you really want to get involved in what we're doing, we love to hear from patients, from caregivers, or anybody who really just has friends or family uh, that have been impacted by something um, that they want to see get fixed. You know, we really like to hear about the issues. We like to hear the stories. Um, and we really are there to help. We are there to help for um, veterans. We're actually working on some firefighter initiatives right now as well, because it turns out firefighters develop myeloma um, faster than just about any other cancer. Uh, if you remove for gender bias, so we're working on something for that. Uh, and then we also are just working all the time to really improve uh, patients' treatments, patients' outcome, and also research funding, um, which is something I forgot to talk about. But we do uh, push for NIH and NCI, which is the National Institutes of Health and National Cancer Institute funding every single year to increase that. Congressionally directed medical research programs, we're always pushing uh, to increase the funding and to include myeloma uh, as a blood cancer uh, under that peer-reviewed cancer research program. We've been super successful at that. So there's a lot of ways that we can be impactful, but we always need those people to reach out to us. So again, it's advocacy at myeloma.org um, or the website, you know, you can go to advocacy.myeloma.org as well uh, to, to reach directly to our website. But, you know, check out the IMS website, myeloma.org. There's tons of good information on there. Uh, and again, you know, love to hear from people. And I'll say it too, also for you, you know, because I think, I think it needs to be said. I mean, I'm on their website right now. There's ways that you can directly donate, even if you um, just want to get involved and do anything of $25 or a small increment. Um, you know, they obviously take uh, individual donations, corporate donations as well. Um, they, like all nonprofits that are registered with the IRS, um, can be funded as well through personal charity charge cards or using Amazon Smile or, you know, a host of other ways to, to give back. But Ray, I really just want to thank you so much for lending your expertise and your time to this podcast. So thank you so, so much for, for being a guest here. Yes, yeah, Stephen, really appreciate it. And if you ever want to do it again, just let me know. No, I'd love to do a recap in another one and make you a regular. It'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> sure. Um, and I give a final um, thank you again for all of our listeners and all the nonprofits that are a part of Charity Charge. Really, are, we're having so much fun here at Charity Charge serving you and um, just being a part of the nonprofit community. So thanks so much for listening and check us out on another episode. Bye for now.